But we are in our last Sunday of our series that we're doing going through the book of James uh, that we have entitled Wise Up. And we call it that because if you look up Wise Up, if you just Google it, it says to start to understand and believe what you have heard about something, even if it is unpleasant or difficult, which sums up the book of James perfectly, as we've been saying every week. James is a book with lots of commands. In fact, there's 108 verses in the book of James, 54 clear commands. So half of what he wrote was commands from God. And some of them are not too bad. Some of them are a little tough. And some of them are, ooh, that's challenging. And, uh, but I, I, I've loved the book of James for a long time because I, I want to be challenged in my faith. And I believe you guys do too. And so uh, we've gone through it this month. And it's been really great. We, uh, in fact, my text today is going to be out of James 4. If you want to turn there, if you have your Bible, it will also be on the screen. Uh, but we started talking about outrageous faith. And then we talked about faith without works. Now James says that it is dead and then last week we were in the, talking about the tongue and the power of the tongue in our life. And today we're gonna to finish up talking about um, submitting to God, submission to God. So uh, we're gonna read out of James 4, verse four. In fact, I'm gonna ask you to stand with me if you would, please. We're gonna honor God's word together. We're gonna to read through the first part of verse eight. And don't take this as a rebuke. This is just uh, part of the verse because he is kind of rebuking people, but um, that's not for us today necessarily. Unless you need it, then you can receive it as a rebuke. Uh, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you not think that scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely, but he gives us more grace. Thank God for that. That is why the scripture says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And here's my main text verse. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Great promise from our God. The title of my message today is Submission Without Condition. Would you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you so much for your word, God. Your word is life. Your word is transforming. And I pray that you would do in these next few moments what only you can do in our lives and that it would produce fruit and it would go with us and God, that you would be glorified in our midst. Thank you for this time we have together, Lord. And we pray that you would be blessed and that we would be blessed today as well. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen. amen. God bless you. You can be seated. So we're talking about submission to God today, which is, which is good. It's challenging for us. I was challenged preparing this. And uh, so in the first service, I heard a lot of feedback too that um, I was stepping on a lot of toes. So, so pull your toes back in underneath the seat. Um, but it's really good. It's so, so rich well, how James uh, leads us into truth in God's word. Uh, submission to God, I wanna start with a definition for submitting. To submit means to yield to a superior force or to the authority or will of another person. That's just Webster's definition of it, but it works perfectly with our relationship with God, doesn't it? To yield to a superior force or to the authority or will of another person. Basically, it means to let somebody else be in charge. That's what submitting means. Somebody else is in charge and you're not. Uh, I wanna start with a, a short story uh, about submitting. Uh, there was a, a captain of a ship out on the sea and it was at night and he could see out in the distance there were some lights. So he told his signaler to signal to them to tell them to divert their course by 10 degrees south. So the signaler does that. He sends a message, says divert your course 10 degrees south and he gets an immediate response that says, you divert your course 10 degrees north. This captain was not happy. 
And so he, sends his, he tells his signaler, listen, you signal them again, and you tell them I am Captain Smith, and you divert your course 10 degrees. So he does that. Immediately they get a response again. Well, I am Private First Class Jones, and you divert your course 10 degrees north. So now the captain is just irate, almost can't see straight, he's so mad. He says, okay, now I know, I'm gonna fix him. He, says, he tells the signaler, send them a message saying, divert your course 10 degrees south, we are a battleship. And they get an immediate response. They said, you divert your course 10 degrees north, we are a lighthouse. <laughs> Didn't see that coming, did you? Um, <laughs> how many of you know that we are not hardwired to submit to others? It's not in our DNA to naturally just want to be submitted to someone, especially if we disagree with them. Now, if we agree with them, it's a little easier, right? You could submit if someone is in tune with you and in line with you and even doing things that you want to do. If my wife says to me this afternoon, hey, Reagan, listen, tomorrow I want you to go golfing. I am willing to submit to that without any question whatsoever. But now if I already have golf plans tomorrow and she comes to me this afternoon and says, I need you to cancel your golfing because I need you to stay home and finish painting the living room, we might have a little battle of the wills because that's not lining up with what I want, right? There's immediately a response that, our, our immediate response is not to submit, it's to want to have our will accomplished, not the other person's will. If you have kids, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Kids don't have to learn to not submit. <laughs> it is born in them to want what they want. A child is very selfish innately, all of them are. It's something that every one of us wants to have our own way in our life. And it's also that way in our relationship with God. Just because we become a Christian does not mean all of a sudden we just naturally want to submit to God. We know enough to know that we have selfish motives in life. In fact, many people come to God because of selfish motives, what God can do for them. We talk about it often, but the prosperity gospel is really that. It's come to God because of what he can do for you and how much he can bless you. That is completely contrary to God's word and to the truth of the gospel and what it is. But yet that is something we like. It's why it's so appealing to so many people because we don't wanna to have to subverse our, submerge our will. We want to be able to have our will fulfilled. And God can come in and help me fulfill my will. But that's antithetical to what the true gospel is for us. And you might think, well, don't we get a new heart when we get saved? Of course we do. We get a new life. We go from death to life, the Bible says. We're raised to life in Christ. And not only that, we get the Holy Spirit when we get saved. The Bible's very clear that the Holy Spirit dwells in every believer. And it's very true. But that does not mean that we don't still have the battle of the wills. If God asks me to do something or I know there's something that I'm supposed to do based on his word that is against what I really want to do in my selfish nature, there will often be a battle of the wills between me and God, between all of us and God, because that's not in our nature to do. And if you don't believe that, just go to Romans 7. Read Romans 7. It talks about the sin in us and how we're constantly battling with it, even as followers of Jesus, that it's a challenge for us in our life. So let me, I want to read uh, verse 5 of my text verse again. I'm going to go back and read separate verses out of my text uh, throughout this message today to kind of unpack it a little bit. Verse 5 of James 4, it says, Do you think Scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely. 
Now, you can read over that real quickly and not really get much from it, but if you think about it, you think, okay, there's a few things that are confirmed from this verse. First of all, it's confirmed that the Spirit does live in us. If you are a Christian today, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. It also confirms that the, the way the Holy Spirit got in you is by God. It says God, the, the Spirit that he put in you. So it's from God and it's in you. But it also confirms that this Holy Spirit that lives in you is also very, very jealous. That he envies, the Bible says. In fact, the Bible talks in Old Testament too about the fact that God is a jealous God. And a lot of people have trouble with this. In fact, if you talk to somebody that's, that maybe walked away from their faith or isn't a believer, many times they'll quote stuff like this, that, well, if God's so perfect, how can he be jealous? If jealousy is a sin for me, how is it not a sin for God? Well, jealousy is a sin for me because when I'm jealous, it's just because of my selfish nature. It's because you have something or you're experiencing something that I want to experience, so it makes me jealous. When God's jealous, it's a holy jealousy. It's not a sin when God is jealous because God's jealousy is looking out for us. It is because he wants that relationship with us and he knows that anything out there that our fleshly desires covet or want desperately in our life is stuff that can get in between us and him. It can affect and hinder our relationship with him. And so God is jealous for us, not just because he is the one that deserves all our affection, that is part of it, but also because he knows the things that can get in the way of us. So he's jealous for us. That's actually beautiful when you look at it like that. And he knows that you cannot have all the selfish desires in your life and have a thriving, growing relationship with him. It doesn't work. So that makes the spirit in us jealous for us. And so if, if we, when we got saved and got the spirit of God in us, everything else just went away and my will was automatically just squashed and now I just want God's will in my life, the spirit of God in us wouldn't envy. It wouldn't have to envy, it would just be walking along with us. But because we still have our will, James is telling us that this Holy Spirit inside of us envies severely in our life. So his jealousy, or the Holy Spirit is jealous because he knows in our life that when we go after the things of self, when we go after our own things, that it does not produce the things it promises in our life. It does not produce security. It does not produce safety. It does not produce contentment. It doesn't produce happiness in our life. In fact, what it actually does is it feeds the fear in our life. You know, fear is an epidemic in our society right now. Fear, insecurity, depression, all these things are epidemics in our society and they are in the church too. And when you look at it and you analyze it, you can see in all, in, in all cases pretty much that it is about self. When we are focused on ourselves more than we are focused and we're focused on our will and our purpose more than we're focused on God's will and his purpose, that's when we can fall into depression even deeper. That's when we can fall into fear even deeper, insecurity. Insecurity is always, always rooted in self, every time. And every one of us deals with it, but we deal with it on different levels depending on how much we are consumed with ourself. Insecurity is always about self. So God is jealous for us because he wants us to walk in the freedom that he has designed for us in our life. So I titled this message Submission without condition, because we are actually prone to submission with condition. When we come to God, the, the tendency for all of us in our life is to come to him and to submit in some ways, but to also have conditions on our surrender. It's not an unconditional surrender to him, it's a conditional surrender. It's, a, it's kind of a give and take, it's kind of a faux submission. It's saying, God, okay, I'll give you X, but I need you to give me Y. And if I give you X and you don't give me Y, we're gonna have a problem, God. 
And then our submission kind of wanes. It can, we can pull back because we're not experiencing what we think we're supposed to experience. And it can be a huge, huge hindrance in our life because God obviously wants our unconditional submission. And there are benefits that come from it. We do get things from God from being submitted to him, but that cannot be the primary focus because I'm going to show you here in a little bit that we don't receive from God when we ask with selfish motives in our life. We actually submit to him because, well, frankly, because he's worthy of it, because he deserves it, because he's above all, because he's greater than all, because he created you, because he loves you, because he paid the ultimate price for you, because he died for you, because he rose again for you, because he put his spirit in you. The list goes on and on and on and on and on about the reasons that God is worthy of our unconditional surrender to him, to submit to him in every way. But alas, we have this, this flesh that just does not like to give up easily, does it? And it's something we're always being challenged with. And it's, it's easy for us to think, to have misconceptions about what it looks like to be submitted to God, fully submitted, how that looks. Because the reality is that God is waiting for our submission without condition. God is waiting for it. See, we can easily think that God is, once we become a, a Christian and we have the Holy Spirit, we're walking around in this life, that God is just always walking right behind us. And he's, he's hanging out and he's kind of wringing his hands, waiting for us to acknowledge him. You know, we're kind of doing our own thing. We, we're saved, but we're kind of doing our thing in our situations. And, and we're thinking that he's with us. He's with people. And, and we're just hoping that these people will just stop and acknowledge him, turn around and, and acknowledge him in their life. And God's just waiting for that for us. And he's always just right there. He's just following us everywhere, hoping that we will just submit something to him. But the Bible doesn't paint that picture. The Bible doesn't paint the picture that God is just always following us around and just really hoping we'll just give him something. In fact, the Bible it tells us very clearly that it's really about us seeking him, that we have to diligently seek him, that we have to pursue him, that we have to draw near to him in our life. In fact, in, uh, in James 4, verses 7, 8, the two last verses of my text, it says, submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. It seems to me like when it comes to submission, the onus is on us to initiate the submission. Do you ever find yourself th thinking that, well, you know what, there's things I just haven't been able to give up to God and I'm just waiting for him to just kind of overwhelm me with his presence to the point that it'll just be really easy to lay that down. I, felt, I found myself feeling that way at times, thinking like, God, I just need you to overwhelm me. Just overwhelm me with your presence and just take away that desire that I even have for that thing that I'm not supposed to have. And sometimes God will, he'll do miracles. He's a miracle working God. There's absolutely no doubt about it. But to, but to approach our life and just think, well, until he really just takes it from me, I guess it's just okay that I have it or that I pursue it is really in error when you look at the scripture. He's saying, come near to me. We need to initiate the submission to God. We initiate that giving ourselves to him and laying down our will and then wanting his will to be accomplished in our life. Jesus said in, in the Lord's Prayer, when he told, told us how to pray, he said, you actually need to pray that my will would be done. In other words, pray that your will isn't done because they usually don't align. So pray that my will would be done. So we have to take the initiative to seek his will in our life. I'll give you a few more verses that will kind of reinforce what I'm talking about. Matthew 6, very famous verse, the words of Jesus. He said, seek first his kingdom 
and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Seek first his will. Seek first his purpose in your life. Don't seek your own. Seek his first and then all the other stuff will be given to you. Then the freedoms that you're looking for, then maybe the desire is being taken away, but it's about you first seeking him, coming to him first. You go on into Psalm 145, verse 18. It says, the Lord is near to all who call on him. We are initiating, we are coming near to him, so he's coming near to us. And it even tells us in a few more verses that it's not even okay that it's just half-hearted, that we would just kind of throw a token prayer out there, but that we would diligently Draw near to him and pursue him. Psalm 63, 1, a beautiful Psalm of David. It says, you God are my God, earnestly I seek you. Earnestly, I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you. That's not a guy that's throwing a token prayer to God. In a dry and parched land where there is no water. Jeremiah 29, 13, another famous verse. You will seek me and find me when? When you seek me with all of your heart all of your heart. Let me tell you, if you're seeking God for your will, trying to get your will accomplished, you're not seeking him with all your heart. You're seeking him with your selfishness. To seek him with all your heart means to come to him wanting his will to be done in your life. And then Hebrews 11, second part of verse six, another famous verse. Anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him who earnestly seek him. There is a responsibility on our part to earnestly seek God, to be intentional about saying, I'm not going to seek my own will. And church, this is something we have to do daily. I can lay down my will and 10 minutes later be looking for my will again, all the time. It just doesn't stop. It's something we have to constantly be laying down our will so that his will can be accomplished in our life. Oh, what about the fact that he says, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. You'll never be separated from my love, that I'm always there. You know, he, Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Of course he did. He's seeking us too for salvation. He's seeking us too for his kingdom. But when it says he won't leave us or forsake us, that's basically him saying like, listen, when you diligently seek me, I'm never gonna say, nah, I'm good, bro. He's never going to not be there. He's never going to vanish when you're seeking him. But we still have to earnestly seek after his will and his purpose. And the only way we can do that is if we are submitted to him and we are laying down our own will. All these verses basically mean to submit to God. Seeking him is about submitting to him. We don't seek God to get him to do our bidding. That's not how it works. We seek him to know him and to know his will and to know his plan and his purpose. We need to understand today that there are prayers that we can pray asking God for everything that we wanna ask him for or, or anything we wanna ask him for that God will not answer. Did you know that there are prayers God will not answer? And it doesn't matter how passionately you pray it. It doesn't matter how diligently and how earnestly you do it. It doesn't matter how eloquent you are. You can pray in King James all you want. And there are times that God does not answer our prayers, no matter what. And it always has to do with the heart. It always has to do with whether or not we are submitted to his will. I'm not making it up, it's in James 4, 3. This is the verse right before my text verse, in verse three. Look what he says, he's talking about praying. And he's saying, when you ask, when you pray, 
You do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Now that is a verse, um, we would probably just like to cross that one out of the Bible. Like give me a Sharpie, let's just get rid of that one. That can't be inspired by God. Because it just doesn't make sense because that's not what you hear very often that, that God actually will not answer your prayers if you're praying with wrong motives. Because it's too easy to think, well, if that's the case, I mean, I don't ever know if my motives are pure. He's never answering my prayers then. But that's not what this is about. This is about, this is about intentionally knowing that I'm praying because I really am not willing to lay down my will. God, I want my will in this situation, and I really want you to bend your will to mine so that I can have my way because I really need it. That's what this is about. And James is saying here very clearly, you cannot receive it from God. You can pray, you can believe, you will not receive it if it is not about his will. That's why Jesus said you can pray anything according to the will of the Father and it'll be done. We have to know God's will. We can't assume to know his will in every situation, in any situation. You can't assume to know his will. Now there's things that are clear cut in his word that we can know that this is God's will because of what his word says but we have to make sure that we are laying down our will so that we are able to receive his will in our prayers. Now, that being said, you might still get an answer to your prayer when you pray for something and it's not really lined up with God's will. It might still happen because we live in a world where sometimes stuff just works out. You know, there are a lot of, there are atheists out there that don't believe a thing about God that stuff works out for them. There are people out there believing wrong religions that they pray to their God and it works out exactly the way they prayed. And so they think they received it from God. There's things that we may be praying for and it may happen, but it was outside of God's will. What James is telling us is you didn't receive it from God. You might've just, had, might've just worked out for you, but you didn't receive it from God because God does not respond to our selfish prayers. Now that's a tough word. That's a tough word for all of us to think God does not respond to my selfish prayers. But Jesus is very, very clear about it. In fact, like I said, when in the Lord's Prayer, he says to pray that his will would be done. You know what I do? Because I don't assume to know God's will, will in very many situations. I don't assume to know it in any situations, really. And so we need, the, we need the wisdom of God in situations, right? And sometimes we can't even fully get his wisdom. So what I, what I typically do, this is a habit that I've formed in my own life. I kind of do what I would call like a God's will sandwich. <laughs> Sounds so weird, but... It's the first time I've ever used that term, but anyway. Uh, but when I, there's a situation that I'm praying about. I will always start by saying, God, I really want your will to be accomplished in this situation. This is what I would like to see in this situation. This is what I, I think is probably what you, I would hope it's what you would want. It's what I feel this is what I would like to see in this situation. Some selfish desire in it, but really trying to line up with his will. And then I finish again by saying, but God, your will be done. I want your will, this is what I want, your will be done no matter what. Just like Jesus said, Lord, take this cup from me, but your will be done. Like it's okay to pray and say, God, I, this is what I would think, this is what I want, but God, I really want your will. And when we do that, what it does is it keeps our heart in line. It lines up our heart, it helps to purify our heart to make sure that, you know what, if my motives aren't pure, that I believe God will reveal it to me. Or if it's not what he's going to do, I believe he'll reveal it to me and he'll show me. And it's, but it's about like, and it's not about being religious about it. It's about making sure that I am being diligent to do my part to submit to him. Saying, God, I don't presume to know what you want in this situation, 
but I want your purpose to be accomplished. I want your will. I want your kingdom to come and your will be done in the earth because I know if that is happening, that it's going to be good. It may not even feel good in the moment if it doesn't happen exactly the way I want it, but it will be good. And God, I want your will to be done. And that is a great way to keep our hearts in line. Because when it comes to submission to God, the resistance that we have always originates with our pride. James talks about pride, if you remember it in my text verse. And pride puts us in opposition to God, is what James says. In fact, I'll read verse six. It says he gives us more grace. That's why the scripture said, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now this is another very scary verse, to think that God opposes us in our pride. This is a, this is a letter that James wrote to the churches that were scattered in the first century. This is, not a, this is not something that he's trying to do evangelistically to a bunch of people that are far from God. These are Christians. And he's saying, listen guys, God opposes the proud. You want his grace? Show some humility. Because in your pride, he's going to oppose you. And you might think, well, what is pride? Well, I, I define pride very clearly, very simply as wanting what you want more than what God wants. It's really what it boils down to. It's wanting what you want more than God wants. It's the selfish desires that we have in our life. And what this does is the pride, it puts us on opposite teams. That word where it says he opposes, that is not a good word. It's not a thing where God is just saying, uh-uh, I wish you didn't do that. It's saying that he's literally being put on a different team from us. He's on the opposite side. Like when we're walking in faith with Jesus, he's with us, he's on our team, he's helping us, he's walking with us. When we're walking in pride, it literally causes him to turn around and be on the other team face to face with us now, not side by side. Because God will not condone the pride in our life. And you might think, yeah, but he can't possibly mean that. There's no way God is opposing me in my pride. Everybody's got pride. How can God oppose me if I have pride? And there's nobody that's perfectly humble. No one. So how can he oppose me in that? God loves me. There's nothing that could separate me from his love. He loves me. He would never oppose me if he loves me. Well, here's, here's a hard truth for today. God can love you and still oppose you. He can love you and still oppose you. He did it to Peter. When Jesus was with Peter and Jesus was with his disciples, and he was telling them about how he was gonna be killed, crucified, and Peter pulls him aside, starts to rebuke him and says, Lord, this will never be. And you guys know what, Peter, what Jesus said to him? Get behind me, Satan. And it wasn't a joke. It wasn't like, oh, you're like Satan. He was very, very serious in what he was saying to Peter. And you know what he said after that? He said, you don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. Your pride is getting in the way, Peter. It is God's will to crush me. It is God's will that I do this. You don't know God's will. You're assuming you do, so you're gonna stand in there and tell me what? And Jesus had to oppose him in that moment, in that situation. Now, the good thing about God, when he opposes us, it is not to push us away, it's actually to draw us near. When he opposes us, it's to reveal the pride in our life so that we can deal with it, so that he can get back on our team. That's the beauty of our God. That's the beauty of how Jesus works. If he's opposing us, it's not like it's a once and for all that he holds a grudge like humans do, where it's like, oh, you had pride, I'm done. I'm walking away. 
No, if he's opposing you, it's, a, it's an active opposition so that we can see, okay, something's not right here. God's working against me here so that we deal with our pride. It's always to reinstitute. It's always to restore us back to him when he opposes us in our life. But he has to oppose us because what pride does is it elevates ourself at a, to a place in our life that only God is supposed to be. It puts us in the place of God, really, when we're walking in pride and we're entertaining it and we're condoning it in our life. Pride is easily the biggest hurdle when it comes to submitting to God without condition. Easily. And James kind of talks a little bit about this in a few different places here in his book or in his letter. And I want to unpack a few of these uh, as, I, as I finish up today because this pride puts us in opposition to the things of God that James is showing us here. And the first one is that it puts us in opposition to God's wisdom. We all want wisdom, amen? We all want godly wisdom. It's very important. The older I get, the older we all get probably, the more we see how important it is to have godly wisdom. When you're young, you know, you're bulletproof and everything will work out, it's all gonna be fine. But as you get older, you realize, wow, I really need God's wisdom. You look back and you think the situations where you think, man, I'm so glad for God's wisdom in that situation because it saved me from a lot of heartache and trouble. And you also look back at situations and go, wow, I really wish I had had God's wisdom in that situation because it would have saved me from a lot of heartache and trouble. And we all need that wisdom. We want the wisdom of God and God wants us to have it too. His desire is for us to have his wisdom, the wisdom that comes from heaven. In fact, he was so pleased when Solomon said he wanted wisdom that he blessed him immensely. When Solomon first became king and God spoke to him and said, hey, what do you want me to do for you? Instead of asking for all the stuff and all the money, Solomon said, I want wisdom. And God was so pleased, he said, not only am I gonna give you that, but because you didn't ask for all the other stuff, I'm gonna give you that too. And Solomon knew how important wisdom was because in Proverbs then, which Solomon wrote, he wrote that if, if it costs you everything you have, get wisdom. That's a mighty price tag. And he's saying it doesn't matter. And Solomon had a lot more riches than any of us will ever have. But he said, if it costs you everything, go get it. It's worth it. The wisdom of God is so important. And James talks about it in James 3. I'm gonna back up one chapter to chapter 3, verse 13 to 17. He says, who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition or pride in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Earthly wisdom. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven, this is the godly wisdom, is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, there it is, being submitted, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. So the wisdom that God wants us to have, it comes through being submitted to him. And it also builds that submission in our life. That's what wisdom looks like. So if you wanna, you wanna, you wanna look at somebody, you would say, man, that person has so much godly wisdom in their life. I can tell you there's no question they are submitted to Jesus on a level that many people don't get to experience. Because that wisdom comes from being submitted and being humble before God. Now James shows us here there's actually two kinds of wisdom. There's worldly wisdom and then there's godly wisdom. 
We have to be careful never to be content with the worldly wisdom. Many people are. Many would say, ah, I'm just happy to have a little bit of wisdom just to be able to get through life. You know, the worldly wisdom's fine. But the Apostle Paul actually said in Corinthians that the wisdom of the world is actually foolishness to God. And it doesn't mean a whole lot because it doesn't have any eternal significance. The wisdom we really need, the wisdom we should desire in our life is the godly wisdom that James is talking about. The wisdom that gives us discernment in situations that God would give us that you couldn't even know on your own to help you through the situations, to give you, uh, to give you clarity and to help you make decisions on things that, that don't even necessarily make sense or don't, it's, it's beyond even what you would have ever, ever learned, but, but being able to be led by God in that is so beautiful. And that wisdom only comes from being submitted to God and having to deal with our pride because pride would keep us from being submitted. Okay, so pride also puts us in opposition to God's voice. It puts us in opposition to God's wisdom and also God's voice, hearing God's voice. And we all wanna hear God's voice, amen? We all love to know what God is speaking. And I'm not talking about his literal voice because there's the audible voice of God is very rare for people to actually hear it. I've never heard the audible voice of God. I don't know many people that have ever heard an audible word from God, some have. But the voice of God is much more than just the way we would speak to each other. It's, it's any way that he would speak to us. He speaks to us in our heart. He speaks to us, to our spirit, to where we are prompted in such a way that we just know that God is leading me to do something. You can't even always really explain it. You just know that you know that God has spoken to you in a certain way, maybe through prayer, maybe through reading his word. You read, you read something in the Bible and it just jumps off the page at you like it's slapping you across the face. And even though you've read it a thousand times, this time it meant that exactly what it meant for you in that moment. Or speak it to you through someone else or through a sermon or somewhere where you just know it's not just words, it's actually God speaking to me. God has spoken to me through emails that I've gotten from other people. That I read it and it just, I knew in that moment, wow, that is the word of the Lord for me. Because it, it stirred something in me. It stirred in my spirit and I knew it was the voice of God. And if you want to hear the voice of God in your life, pride puts you in opposition to that. Our pride keeps us from hearing the voice of God. We think we don't hear God because, well, you know, I just, I don't know how to hear him. I get so distracted. There's so many things going on. I'm not, I'm not spiritual enough. I don't know how to hear God. When really the reality is the biggest hindrance to hearing God's voice in your life is pride. It's, it's, it's just simple pride. I'm going to read again from James 4, verses 1 to 3. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? That's the pride of life. You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you do ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. So I read that verse a little bit ago, that last verse. I'm sharing it again with you here because it's so important that we understand. He's saying, when you ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. He's saying you're not gonna receive, okay? Okay, this is just not just about receiving the answer to your prayer that you're looking for. Like the, the fruition of whatever you're praying for, the, the job, the relationship, the, the health thing that you need answered, whatever it might be, it's not just receiving those things, it's actually receiving anything. It's receiving, hearing the voice of God. It's hearing him answering your prayer. 
James is what part of what he is saying in this verse is that when you pray, because you don't do it very often because you're so proud, when you do finally pray, you're not even hearing from God. You're not hearing because your motives aren't pure. You're also not hearing because you're not praying very much is what James is saying. He's saying you don't even ask. And when you do, you don't hear because your motives aren't good. And God wants us to hear his voice, but our pride and our selfishness legitimately keep us from hearing from God. We have to be consistently pursuing him, diligently, earnestly pursuing him. If you want to hear God in your life, it is about making sure you are living a life of consistently putting yourself in his presence about being in his word, about spending time in prayer, about being connected to a body of believers, being encouraged in the word, and, and, put it, and inviting Jesus into every part of your life. That is how you hear the voice of God. It's about consistently being before him. You know, I know, I feel like I know more today than I ever have when I know that God is speaking to my heart. You know how I know? Because I've had a lot of experience in his presence. I have dedicated my life to being in the word, to being before him, to dedicating everything I do to him and always submitting myself to him and reminding myself to be submitted to his will and not my own. And the longer I go, the more I feel like when I hear from him, I know it's him. And I can have confidence in that. And I can also tell you, there have been times in the past where I thought I heard from him and I didn't. And I stepped out in faith because I thought he said to do something and I missed it badly. But you learn from those experiences as you consistently seek him and pursue him. You know, I mentioned earlier about golf. I love to golf. Easily my favorite hobby to do. Just started playing more in the last couple of years. Uh, I played baseball all growing up and my baseball coaches always wouldn't let us golf because they said it hurts your baseball swing. So I never golfed. And then as I got older, I started golfing a little bit and I love to golf, but guess what? I'm not very good. <laughs> baseball does not translate to golf, I can tell you that. I'm not very good at it. You know why? Because I play maybe once, twice a month. And that's only been in the last couple of years. Before that, I was playing a couple times a year. It's not very good. If you know anything about golf, you know that the way to get better is to play a lot. And I can't get real frustrated when I'm out there playing and somebody that plays two, three times a week is smoking me, which happens frequently. But I can't really get upset because there's no comparison because I haven't spent the time to be able to really improve that. And let me tell you, this is not about religious exercise when I'm talking about being before God. It's about really living a life submitted to him. It will, it will cultivate that in your life where you will, you will be spending time with him and you will learn when he is speaking to you and when he isn't. You will, learn, you will learn to sense it. You will see the signs. You will be able to confirm what God is saying to you in your heart as we are consistently pursuing him. But James is saying, listen, you don't even really pursue him. So when you do, don't think you're really gonna hear from him because frankly, your motives aren't gonna be good because you're really not preparing your heart in a way that you're consistently with him to let him purify your heart to even make your motives good. So this will completely get in our way of hearing God's voice, the pride in our life. We want God sometimes just to answer our prayers and give us what we need. We want him to be our cash cow. We want him to be our genie in a bottle. We want him to fix our relationships. We want him to fix our health situation. We want him to take our addictions away from us. We want him to do the things we want. And we just come to him for those things when God says, mm -mm, I want to be in every area of your life. I want to be in the deepest, darkest places in your life. You can welcome me into those places and know that I'm going to help you in there. 
that I'm not gonna reject you, I'm not gonna forsake you, I'm not gonna turn my back, I'm going to redeem you, and if you let me into it and you submit your will to my will, you'd be amazed at what I can do. That's what he wants for us, not to just half-heartedly pursue him. To know his will, you've got to be able to discern what he's doing in these situations. I love it in, uh, I think it's in Matthew 8, where the, the man with leprosy comes before Jesus and he says, Jesus, if you are willing, you can heal me. And Jesus says, I am willing. And he heals him. He wasn't saying there like, Jesus, you know, if you feel like it, you can heal me. He was saying, if it's your will, you can heal me. And Jesus said, it is my will. That's how we should approach everything with Jesus. Lord, if it's your will, I'd like a new job. If it's your will, I'd like X. But your will be done, not mine. And even how that works in your life, even how that comes to fruition, how that plays out, isn't necessarily gonna be the way you think it is. Like, God, I need a new job, so I'm gonna go apply for this job. I really want this one. I need you to give me favor with that boss, and I need, uh, this is how much I wanna make, and this is all the things I want, and I want my old job to be like totally fine with me leaving and all these things, and wrap it up in a nice bow for me, please. That's not submitted to God. That's saying, God, I want your, I want my will, I want you to bend your will to mine and do it the way I want it. And the reality is you can just come to God and say, God, I'm really not happy in my job. I'd like, you, I'd like you to either help me to find the joy in this job and help me to make provision for my family, or I, or I would like for you to move me out of this job, God, but I want your will to be done. Show me what it is in this situation. We're submitted to him. We can still ask him for the things we want to ask him for, but we are submitted to his will, not our own. All right, and then lastly, our pride puts us in opposition to God's grace. And this, is, this could be a whole message in and of itself. This could be a whole series, really, when we talk about the grace of God. I'm only gonna hit a couple high points here real quickly, but James says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. A very simple exegesis of this verse, you don't have to dig deep to see the meaning of this verse. It means if grace comes by humility, then pride is the hindrance to God's grace. Wait a minute, I can hinder the grace of God in my life? You better believe it. You can hinder it all day long. You can hinder the grace so quickly and so easily. But doesn't God just give us his grace because he loves us? Yeah, he does. He's full of grace for us. But we can absolutely hinder it if we are walking in pride, if we are embracing the pride, if we are allowing the pride in our life. And I'm not just talking about pride of like, you know, I'm thinking I'm better than you. I'm talking about the pride of independence, thinking I could do it without God or thinking, you know, I just, I can do it myself. Maybe God just come on in and help me a little bit, but it's really, it's really about my will and not yours. That's what this pride is all about. My will. And if you are determined to have your will accomplished, you are squashing the grace of God in your life. You are hindering the grace of God in your life. The Bible is very clear. Peter says it too in 1 Peter 5. He says, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. He goes a step further to say that he, he opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble so that he can lift us up in due time. He's saying he wants you to be humble so he can pour out his grace in your life in due time. May not happen the way you want it to happen overnight, but in due time, Peter says, you're gonna experience that grace in ways that you can't experience if you're walking in pride and if you're walking in a way that you want your will to be accomplished and not God's. Humility comes from responding to the conviction of the Spirit. Very simply. I, I was talking about this a couple weeks ago that conviction is one of the greatest things in all the universe. 
When we are convicted by God in our life, it is a beautiful, beautiful thing. In fact, if you talk about never being able to hear the voice of God, if you've ever been convicted by the Spirit because you knew you did something you shouldn't have and the Spirit is convicting your heart and making you feel like you shouldn't have done that or that you need to repent, that's the voice of God every single time. Not the condemnation, feeling like you're, you're no good and you're nothing. That's, that's the devil speaking to you. But the conviction that comes from God is meant to restore us. It is meant to bring us to a place where we will humble ourselves so that we can experience the grace of God. So conviction starts, brings humility into the situation. We humble ourselves and we experience God's grace. That's how it works. So if you refuse to respond to conviction in your life, you can't get to the grace. I can't say it more clearly, church. You cannot get into the river of the grace of God if you will refuse to respond to the conviction and the humility. I've said it before, there's enough grace of God to save every human in the world that's ever existed, amen? No doubt about it, no one would ever argue that. There's enough, a drop of his grace is enough for the entire planet to get saved. Yet billions of people are going to hell. They're not experiencing the grace of God because they are not responding to the conviction and walking in humility to receive that grace. It works the same for us as believers. If you wanna experience that grace, that power that, that God gives in our life, that unmerited favor that we get, we have to respond to conviction in humility. The, the picture of salvation is the picture for our whole life. The picture of salvation is somebody walking into this majestic throne room of God where the king of the universe is on his throne. The angels are saying, holy, holy, holy. It's the most majestic thing that we can't even fathom being in that room. And here we come walking into the room and we are naked, we are dirty, we are wretched, we are pitiful, we have nothing to offer him. There's no reason in the world that he would want to accept us into his family, yet he says, come. That is the picture of salvation. That is the picture of the Christian life. When you come to God, don't come to him arrogantly and say, God, you gotta do this for me. He doesn't have to do anything for you. You come to him and you lay your hands out and you say, God, I have nothing to give you. There is no reason you should listen to me or answer my prayer, but God, please, this is what I want. But Lord, your will be done. Your will be done. That is the humility that makes God respond to us. That's the humility that moves the heart of God in your life and in my life. And the pride actually just makes him say, mm, I don't have time for this. He opposes us and we miss out on the grace that he wants to provide in our life. His grace is power, church. His grace is power to overcome. It's power to set you free. It's power to restore relationships. It's power to help you in every aspect of your life and you miss it because you won't respond to the conviction and walk in humility. And God forbid that we would ever do that or that we would do that consistently. We all do it, but man, when we get to that place with God, that we experience that grace and we consistently seek him and draw near to him and pursue him. The beauty is, is that we, we get convicted quickly. The quicker we get convicted, the better. And responding to that conviction is life-changing. Don't let your pride make you feel like, ah, I, don't need to, I don't need to repent of that. It wasn't that big of a deal. I'm telling you, I know I say it all the time. I'm gonna keep saying it. Repent, repent, repent. Anytime there's something that God shows you that you did, you shouldn't have done repent. Just do it. It's, it's life-giving. It ushers us right back into the grace of God. It takes us right there. Repentance from conviction is the vehicle that puts the grace of God on your front porch and brings it right to your front door. Praise God. Stand with me, please. Thank the Lord. He is worthy to submit our lives to him, church. He is worthy. There's nothing 
that we should be keeping from him. He is so wonderful, he is so good. I have come to him with things that I thought, man, if, if this was a human, he would completely reject me now. And, and when I have given those things to him, I just, I just sense it immediately, the pleasure of God. That he's saying, yes, I've been waiting for you to do this. I've been waiting patiently for you to submit this to me. Most of us in this room and listening online are keeping something that we are not willing to submit to him. Can I just encourage you today, just give it to him. Just give it to him in this moment. Let's pray right now. Just give it to him. You don't have to say anything out loud. You can do it in your heart. You can pray diligently, earnestly, and passionately without saying a word out loud if you want. Or you can say it out loud if you want. Give it to him. Whatever that mountain is, whatever that secret hidden room is in your heart that nobody knows about, give it to him. Just give it to him. In fact, I encourage you, church, let's all of us just hold our hands out as a gesture of we're just surrendering to him. Surrender it all to him. Lord, you can have it all. God, you have my mouth, you have my finances, you have my marriage, you have my kids, you have my thought life, you have my free time, you have my hobbies, you have my sleep, you have my eating, you have everything, God. I give it all to you. Where I have held back, Lord, forgive me. Forgive me, God. Corporately, Lord, we submit to you today. We submit without condition. You are worthy of it all as we sang today. You are worthy. You are worthy, Lord. You are worthy, God. Lord, you are so worthy. It is worth it. God, I pray every heart in this place would know today that it is worth it to give it all to you that all we're doing is hindering ourselves when we hold on to it and when we hold back. God, you are so good. Lord, we, we lay our pride down, our independence, we lay it down today. Our selfishness and most importantly, our wills. We give you our will. Let your will be done. Let your kingdom come in us and through us, Lord. Glorify yourself in our lives, Jesus. We love you today, Lord. We bless you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. amen. God bless you.